Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Close Reads. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And... David Kern is sadly no longer with us. No, he's not dead. He is, he was having technical difficulties, Tim. It was really sad. He's burying his computer. That's he's what he not said gone, he was doing. but his computer is soon There to be has gone. been a casualty of the show, but yeah, it's not exactly. David. Yeah. So far. And the way that his computer was acting up before I think it hates he, him. it, yeah, I think it hates him. I think it's a saboteur. Um, maybe a Confederacy of Dunces saboteur. I was going to say, I think that Ignatius J. Riley would have some choice words for David's computer for sure. I think he would. I think he would. Or alternatively, maybe is like his spirit is in David's computer. Ooh, perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So we are about to talk about Tim and I. A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole, and we are on part three, chapters seven through nine. That is what we are going to talk about today. Tim, any initial thoughts on this section other than its hilarity? Because I was laughing out loud, like crying at multiple points in this section. I think the parts that are funniest to me is when Ignatius J. Riley is in the spotlight and even more specifically, when Ignatius J. Riley is writing. Oh my gosh, same, same. Right? Same-sies. When he is, it's, it's a little bit more, it's not just monologuing, but when he has time to address the reader and kind of give the full flowering of his vocabulary and just goes on some rant against Myrna or like the commercial capitalistic overlords you know, that have doomed him to a life of menial penance. When he gets to do that, it is so great. I feel like you totally nailed that really well. The me- the life of menial penance. Okay, that I was have a worthy of Ignatius J. Riley. I was going to say, do you find when you spend a lot of time with an author, does the vocabulary and syntax of the author kind of I don't know. Do you feel like soaked enough that you start speaking like that author? I really want to say yes, because I think that would make me a much better communicator. I don't know. I've never paid attention to that or noticed that, but I'd like to think that that's true. And I I would like to think that I could speak with the hilarity and eloquence of Ignatius J. Riley without picking up a single one of any of his other characteristics. Of his other bad Not habits. one. Yes. <laughs> Okay, but but look, he well, I, he's very well spoken. He's smart. That's what we talked about last week, right? When David said, "Is he smart?" You said, "No," but you were so wrong. And now, now <laughs> you're. <laughs> I I stand smart. by what I. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, maybe I need to step back on that because I don't think he would have this level of eloquence if he wasn't smart. I think that the kind of smarts that he cannot demonstrate is a kind of smart smarts that's very important to me. And so I was just like, yeah, he's just not Fair. smart. Fair. Right? I think that's true. It is. It's a question of definitions. Yeah. Um, is there an adjective you'd use to describe his level of intelligence, if not smart? Like, is there an alternative adjective you would use? Oh, a word that is kind of a synonym for... Like, if um, he's not smart, like I said, I don't think he's wise, but I think he's smart. Like, if you mm-hmm. were to say, I don't think he's smart, but I think he's... Myopic? Like, he's just very yeah, nearsighted? But, but you could be myopic and not have this... I mean, he is myopic. That's true. But that's not really... That doesn't seem to describe his capacity yeah. for communication and knowledge. Um, I started to say Byzantine, but Byzantine kind of has notions of um, like endless bureaucratic and administrative tunnels that one has to kind of go through. So that's not really, that's not what I mean. He's not Byzantine. Um, he might want to be Byzantine. Yeah, he might want to be. Too bad. Very medieval. I just don't think he is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I would say medieval, but mm-hmm. I think he would take pride in that. And I think that you might object to that. I absolutely object mm-hmm. to that. So that's why I didn't say object it. to that. Right. Well, you I did That's why I didn't it. say it. Well, yeah, well yeah. I just, it You was... said it by saying you weren't going to say it. Right. Right. Exactly. You know what they call that in psychology? Adjectives? What do they call it? Passive what aggressive. What do they call that? <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> There's a name for your illness, Tim. Right. Yeah. It's passive. It's being passive aggressive. <laughs> All right. Lesson learned about Tim. He's going to say what he wants to say. And no, I'm without saying, really, without right? really saying it. Okay. Is there something that stood out to you about chapters seven uh, through nine, Heidi? So I just okay. A. I'm I'm having I'm having such like in this um, war internal war about this book because I. I can't think of the last time I laughed so hard reading a novel, like out loud laughing. I was reading, I have a house guest right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reading on the couch earlier today to get ready for the podcast. And like, I was like crying. Like I was reading these long passages from that working boy letter oh, yeah. or journal entry or whatever it is at the end of, and I, we've got to read some of our favorite it is passages. So right. Yeah. Please, can we? Um and I was laughing so hard. There were like tears like rolling down my face. It's been a long time since I've read a book and laughed out loud. Like how we say that really flippantly, right? And we put it in text, LOL. How many of us are actually LOLing? Actually are LOLing, right? right. Like this was a for real LOL. So I love that. However, I still can't figure out what this book is about. And like, I can't figure out what the plot is on, on all these side characters. And so maybe you can help me get organized in my head. I feel like just the, I can't tell what all of these, how all these threads are going to converge. Yeah. Um, I don't have a sense of that. And I think I said this last week and I'll say it again, that I'm hoping that when we get to the end, they'll all tie together so satisfyingly that I will feel like it was worth it to feel kind of led down the garden path um, throughout the novel, uh, which I do. And then the other thing is that I, it really is just grossing me out. 
Uh-huh. It is grossing me out. There's so a lot of flatulence in this section. I, I can't figure out if I like this book or not, in spite of the fact that I'm sitting on the couch, tears rolling down my face laughing, which is a pleasant experience. So I really am having a bit of a an, an inner war about it. And I know you love it. So convince me to... My, my friend, yeah. Matt, I saw him uh, after church on Sunday and he came up to me and he's not listening along with the podcast. Um but he follows us on the Facebook page and he said, what's up? Why is there so much hate for a confederacy of dunces? It's a fair was, question. Cause this right? is like a smart man book, right? Like this I is think one of those like is. smart men are going to read this book and be like, you get me. I, I'm laughing hard. I love it. None of it. it this is like a guy book. So, okay. I have a theory about that. That I have developed since my conversation with Matt. Okay. And I want to roll it it out to you. Okay. Um, It does involve a little bit of gender profiling. Fair. I think, I think it's warranted because there seems to be, and here's why it's, there seems to be a pretty clear gender divide, even in, in, on the Facebook page, uh, which is where we're getting the most feedback about the book. And so I think it's fair to ask that within the context of our specific reading experience of the book. Hey, why is there such a big gender divide? Uh Please take it away, Tim. Address the question. Okay, here's my hot take. I wonder if it has to do with that kind of traditional notion that I actually think has a lot of bearing in reality, maybe even in biology, that... um, it's a little bit easier for men to compartmentalize certain aspects of this book and just focus on what I think is the main thing, which is the humor of the book. And they can kind of bracket away some things that I wonder if some of our female listeners have a harder time bracketing away. Namely, his he's just a very unappealing character is Ignatius J. Riley, And he seems to be a spokesperson for something that a lot of people, I think yourself included, hold dear, which is kind of an embrace or a, at least a sadness over the loss of a kind of more medieval spirit. And yeah. I think like, okay. okay, even if I, I mean like there's, I want, I want to be clear, like I, there are certain aspects of like the medieval world, the medieval cosmology that I find really appealing. And so when Ignatius is kind of the spokesperson for that vision of reality, part of me is just like, I don't like that. I don't like that he does that. But it's pretty easy for me to just like kind of bracket that away and say, but it's part, but it's but he's so funny and he's so repulsive and it's just, it makes me laugh that the medieval, whatever it is, satire doesn't bother me. Right. I'm not bothered, but I I agree with you. I think that the compartmentalization piece is really key to this book. There's, there's such an obvious emphasis on the physicality and on gross physicality, not just in Ignatius, but in other characters as well. Um, and and so I think we're that's pushed into our face for a reason. Where it's it's like almost I almost feel like he's like rubbing our face in it, and mm. and I think he's doing that on purpose. And so I'm trying to enter into the spirit of it and be like, okay, so I'm just going to read this description of how he's like 
chomping on a hot dog and it's like yeah pink flesh in his mustache and it's hanging out of his mouth like a cigar butt and it's boiling in the water like paramecia mm-hmm. like i'm just gonna mm-hmm. like i'm gonna i'm all in like i am gonna read this and i might be throwing up in my mouth a little bit but this is my job and i'm a professional right like so yeah i yeah i am kind of like pushing through that because i i realize that that he's doing that on purpose and making some kind of comment on the physicality and kind of forcing us to engage in it. Um, and like I said, it's not just Ignatius. Um, it's, it's everybody else. Like that description of Lana and how she's sitting on the bar stool and her buttocks oh, are like squeezing it gosh. and pushing it it's into the ground. It's so funny. It's hilarious. And also I'm like, Ew. And it's also a little right? bit repulsive. Like, right? And it's yeah. clear that that's his, he's doing that on purpose. So, Tim, why? Why? What? What is point is he making that's not, that's beyond the funny, right? It is funny, but it also is, it's something else too, right? Why the emphasis on the physicality? Which brings us to a, my second hot take of the podcast. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason this book is a classic is that it's hard to put a lid on it. And what I mean is you and I in on the, the plays, the thing so often we get to the end of the play and we say, Hey, what was Shakespeare trying to get across in Richard the second? What was he trying to get across in Hamlet? And so often we say, well, he could mean the point of the book might be that Hamlet is an indecisive character, or it might mean, he might mean that um, Hamlet is kind of a great pre-modern hero. He's kind of like at the front edge of like the Renaissance and the old world is breaking down, or he could mean this, or he could mean that. And we get done where like, I think any one of those are like viable ways of reading Hamlet. And there are a variety of different ways of reading Richard II. There's a certain opaqueness to Shakespeare that makes him so invigorating to read and discuss and debate. And I think there's something like that going on in this book. Hmm. There's something really opaque about what exactly is the author trying to do here? Like what, what is the primary theme? Whereas, okay, Anna Karenina, by contrast... When you get to the end of Anna Karenina, like Tolstoy has a point, and I think he makes it with great dexterity and beauty. Mm-hmm. And but you kind of know where he is at the end of the book. Whereas I think that this book falls more in line with something like sh- the the opaque the opacity of Shakespeare. Hmm. And so when you're asking like, what's the point? I'm like, I don't really want to answer that. I mean, I do, I do, but. Um, and I'm, we'll be willing to make guesses by the end of the book, but I just wanted to highlight that I think there's something ah, deliberately, um, like ambiguous or distant. unsaid or yeah. yeah, huh? So that's that's interesting to me, and I'm I'm going to receive that and not challenge it because I feel like there are certain books that. One of them being the infamous book of the Dun Cow, right? That I feel like I just got it and mm-hmm. you didn't, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I just was like, I love this book and I get it. And you were like, what's going on with this book? Yeah. Right? And 
that's kind of how I am with this one. Like, like what's going on? I think it's funny. And I think that it is, and actually to me, Ignatius J. Riley, straight up, I, I find him the most understandable character in the book. Not, I'm not saying relatable, but I like he, and he dominates the book. He takes over the book, right? He is the book. But there's all of these side characters that I'm like, I don't, that, that seem just as like sordid and squalid and mm-hmm. noble as he mm-hmm. is. And so I'm laughing, but I also kind of am like, I don't think I get it. And, and I want to get it. Like I want, because I think it's so funny that I want to be like delighted by the book. Uh-huh. And, but instead I just kind of close it often feeling like cheap, like my soul needs a shower. Okay. Like there's okay. so yeah. much sordid, tawdry, like despicable, small souled people in mm-hmm. this book mm-hmm. that, and so in that way, I find it almost like, I mean, we've, we've been comparing it to Woodhouse, mm-hmm. um, which is true. It has the same kind of like, I don't know if the same kind of humor because Woodhouse is very British, but it makes me laugh as much as Woodhouse, but the people in it are so unlikable to me that I'm having a hard time, like, under, I'm having a hard time delighting in it in, in spite of how funny it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. So okay. can you kind of give me a different perspective on that? Okay, what about this? And this is going to maybe, I think, support something that you've alluded to early on, on earlier episodes of this podcast. What if this really is a kind of modern medievalism? And what we have here is a kind of mashup of the highs and lows of the medieval world. The highs being um, this constant allusion to Boethius's consolation of philosophy, the allusions to what the world needs is theology and geometry. These are like the highs, the aspirational aspects. And then the lows are Chaucer, like all of the kind of flatulence and grit and grime and all of that just seems straight out of Canterbury Tales in so many different ways. And True. maybe like it's a little bit more acute because it's hot dogs instead of, you know, like Pheasants actual swine. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and so like, it's just like, it's hitting us a little bit closer to home. But I think if we were reading... Chaucer back in the day, we might squirm in a way that we squirm reading a Confederacy of Dunces. But now we go back and we read Chaucer, and there's something a little bit more kind of like romantic about the gross parts about it because we're 700 years distance from it. So, what about so it's interesting because I'm seeing a commentary on like the squalid modernity, and you're seeing a commentary on squalid medieval like yeah the low part the kind of like low bodiness that is part of like the medieval literary legacy Mm -hmm. so i guess i've interpreted it as a commentary on squalid modernity Mm -hmm. like all um and so maybe it's both maybe that's part of it is kind of getting us to enter into this both and 
um, like as their culture was squalid and dreary. So ours is squalid and dreary and we don't see how they overlap. And I'm not trying to make it into a morality tale. I promise right. I'm not, but I'm, I'm asking the question. I'm asking the question because I haven't interpreted it at the characters, like these, uh, the, these side characters as like, I do see the Chaucerian elements in them um, for sure. Um, but I've, I've seen it more as like a close up on like a microscope on modern life. And mm -hmm. you're saying you see it as kind of like taking these medieval archetypes and transplanting them in order to make a commentary on, on medievalism. I don't know if it's like a commentary on medievalism. I just wonder if it's our author tool mm -hmm. is taking yeah. kind of a, He's just sort of importing. Yeah, if, I get if that. you took mm -hmm. Chaucer and Boethius and maybe seasoned it with a little bit of Aquinas and brought it into the modern world, what would it look like? If you brought it into like you know whatever 1978 New Orleans, what would that like medieval world look like? It would look like a confederacy of dunces. I see. Yeah, I kind of like that. I think that's good. Is there anybody you like in this book? <laughs> uh, is there anybody that you're like, I hope the next section is about so-and-so. Well, it's always about Ignatius just because yeah, he's going to make me laugh. Yeah. Like, I actually think I like him better than anybody else except Jones. I like, I Jones. like Jones. Yeah, I like Jones. Jones is kind of- he seems a like little bit heroic. Like, yeah, he's a little bit heroic and he's like the only one who's, like, he's real talk. Yeah. Yeah. He's like good, good sense. He has, I mean, kind of a, a skew, but a real moral center. Like he's yeah, got this yeah, boldness yeah. of speech and, and, you know, and he's an underdog for obvious reasons, um, having to do with his profession and his, um, yeah. and, and, you know, and being black, like there's all of this kind of, I, but he's the only one who seems to me to have that, I, that I'm like, I actually like this guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I like feel the same My favorite way. character is Ignatius. Right. But I, I don't, I don't like him. Like, but that's okay. I don't have to like every character. I, heard, I mean, I hope that our listeners and you know that I'm not looking to like like characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Ignatius is like my favorite character. But Jones is like, I finally like somebody in this book, and I'm rooting for somebody. I can't find anybody to root for. Okay, and I think I that puts me off my center a little. I, and I'm with you. So I'm going to admit something that I think I should be a little bit embarrassed about, but I'm not sure. There's a show my brother and sister-in-law really advocated for me to watch. And Galen and I had watched like a few episodes. Galen, hold on. Let me, is Galen mm -hmm. your girlfriend? Yeah. You talking about Galen? Yeah. You talking about Galen, Galen. my girlfriend? Yeah. Galen, your girlfriend? That's right. That's the one. Yep. Oh, this is so exciting. I want to hear more She's got another mention. Galen. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is her second mention. Didn't I like, she, I, yeah. I kind of blurred her name I know, but I just am so happy about this. I think she's, I mean, I haven't met her yet, but from what you say, she just seems wonderful and I can't wait to be your friend. So and I just wanted to give you a chance to, you know, be like, Dave, my girlfriend. She's so beautiful <laughs> and wonderful. And I, yeah. So anyway. So. You are watching she a show. Is it Ted watched, Lasso? No. Oh my no. gosh, that girl is crazy about Ted Lasso. It's and it's a great show. I 
I don't you like, don't like it that much. No, okay, I don't for like whispering because none of us can hear you now. <laughs> don't tell anybody. I don't like Ted Lasso. I, I've never I heard of another human being who doesn't like Ted Lasso. You're the I first. I seriously think something is wrong with me because it's like everything about it is it's darling. It's got like a moral center. It's 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 just fun. Everything about it. I'm just like. Meh. Um, I passed the tea and biscuits. I'm just right? not that interested. You probably just read too much, and now you just have such high standards for the level of quality. Maybe so. That's Maybe not. So now I'm now I'm psychoanalyzing myself as I have been along the way throughout this whole book. Um, because I can I can wrap my head around just not liking a book. There's plenty of books I don't like. Right? Yeah. I can wrap my head around that. That would be easy. It'd be, and I would admit it. I would say I. I didn't think I was going to like this book and I don't like this book. Yeah. But it's not quite that. I think, and I don't know if I'm speaking for anybody else here. I think I'm having this like in this cognitive dissonance because I love the humor so much, but I don't really like the story or the characters. Uh huh. Uh huh. And so I've just, I'm, I'm, and so I'm like, I was picking it up this morning and I'm like, I, and I, I couldn't make myself excited to read it, but as soon as I started reading it, I was like laughing out loud Yep. and yep. enjoyed reading it like all the way through. But, and I'm, and I am going to admit this and I'm not going to whisper because, you know, Tim, everyone can hear me, even if I do whisper. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm going to say this with a bit of trepidation, knowing yeah. it might be my own flaw as a reader. I kind of don't care how it ends. I don't mm. care what happens. Like I have absolutely no investment in the plot of this story, whether they pay off the debt. I have no idea what's going on with any of these side stories. I have no emotional investment other than I enjoy laughing at the humor. Right. Okay. I, I, I want to actually push back on this. Please. Because let's want imagine we've made the comparison between this book and Wooster and Jeeves mm-hmm. novels. If you got to the end of Wooster and Jeeves, and the plot line wasn't kind of done up in a nice bow, would you be a little bit disappointed? Yeah. Right. Yes, I would. I mean, you've got to get that cow creamer back. You've got to get the cow creamer back. Agatha needs that cow creamer. Absolutely. (laughs) So I, let me put this to you. I Mm -hmm. think if these various strands of the book are not patched together in some way, I bet you'll be disappointed. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe I would. Maybe, maybe so. I would, I would be profoundly dissatisfied if I get to the end and find out these were leading nowhere. And I believe they're not. Like, I believe they're yeah. going to come together. Yeah. Right? I think at this point, I just, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that's completely true. I think I just don't know what to be invested in. Even. Yeah. I, I can't tell. Like, is it, is it his, is it him being redeemed in some way? Is it them being able to pay off the debt? Is it like his mom finally kicking him out into the street and him having to fend for himself and act like a man? Um, what's going on with this nightclub and how is it going to tie back in? And mm-hmm. wh- all, all of these kinds of things that, um, where is Constellation of Philosophy? Where is the $15 folio? Yes, <laughs> so, right. It disappears. It so disappears. I, I, I can see that he's throwing out strands. 
and is going to bring him in. And hopefully it'll be like this hilarious kind of farcical, you know, finish to the story. I hope so. To be honest, I can't even remember having read this book. I can't even remember how it ends up. And that is probably a testament to like how relatively little the plot matters. I think Mm. we're going to want it, you know, tied up in a bow. I just don't know that it's like absolutely crucial to what's going on. So what do you think is absolutely crucial to what's going on? Well, I, I'm going to say it again. You didn't like it last episode, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it again. It's just the funny. It's just just funny. I think it's just funny. There's, I mean, I made another case last week, but here's my, here's my question then. If that's the case, then like, why so many characters? Why not like a short story about his relationship with his mom or like there's, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, on the other hand, if I were you, I'd say, well, why the cow creamer, right? Who cares? It's just to be funny. Yeah. Like, right. so although the cow creamer does represent the decadence of upper class British aristocracy, right? And so what does, so, and so you're saying kind of like the car debt is not representative of anything. It's just car, it's just debt incurred from a car accident. Is that right? Is that kind of what you're going to well, I guess what, what I'm say? saying is that it. Well, I, I guess, no, I guess what I'm saying is I think it is just the same way that, that, that Woodhouse is the reason it's so funny is because he's making a commentary on the society. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And like that, that is the, that's the setting in which like Jeeves and Wooster create the farce, the British aristocracy mm-hmm. creates the satire. Right. Yeah. And so, um, and this, uh, that's why the cow creamer, matters right because um it's important because it's completely unimportant yeah like who cares about a cow creamer but it's everything to the story because uh-huh. it represents this excess and decadence and this petty small-mindedness of the people who actually should be investing in and caring about the empire and you you know that's the dis the dissonance between the British aristocratic ideal and the British aristocratic reality and how Jeeves and Wooster have this like bigger than life uh, and, and also smaller than life interaction with that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is what makes it so funny along with just the jokes. Right. And yeah. so I think my point was like, this isn't just about the jokes. There has to be a satirical element to it as well. That is part of the meaning of the story. Okay. Okay. Let me let me try to say what the cow creamer is in Wooster and Jeeves. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to try to echo what you said. It's this kind of metaphor that unlocks the lampooning of the upper classes in Great Britain. So it's not yes. just a cow creamer. It, it right. it's kind of a metaphorical way of opening the book up to see something kind of deeper, mm-hmm. and it doesn't like. And it adds to the humor. humor. It makes it more It adds to the humor. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. If there is such a thing in this book, I'm going to say it's not, it doesn't have to do with the plot, the ostensible plot, which is we need to get Ignatius a job so he can earn back, earn money to pay off the debt. I think if there's a metaphor or an item that unlocks this book, I suspect that it's the book, The Consolation of Philosophy, the Boethius book. So in a second, I'm going to ask you, I think you've already done this, but can you just give us another little kind of like quick, you know, 
two-minute course in the consolation of philosophy because, and I'm going to make the case, I think part of the reason why this might be the kind of like physical manifestation that unlocks this, like a a deeper meaning to this book is that it just shows up everywhere, Mm -hmm. number one. Number two, it's Ignatius has an affection for it. He's kind of foisting it on everybody from... um, Patrolman Mancuso, um, he, he just he wants everyone to read it, and I wonder if the point of the consolation of philosophy, the kind of moral lesson in that book, might actually be part of the moral lesson if we're supposed to get one from this book. Hmm. That's so, great. That's the that's the ball on the tee. Now, can you? Heidi, just give us a little overview of Boethius and his book. Right. I would be happy to. And I love what you're saying because that even, even what you just said opens it up a little bit more to me, especially in relationship, in relation to Ignatius. Uh, okay. So uh, the constellation of philosophy appeared on the scene in Western culture in the mid sixth century. I think it was... 523, I think. It was written by a Roman statesman named Boethius. uh, And he wanted to be, this is interesting. He wanted to be a philosopher. He wanted to withdraw from the world uh, and and study philosophy. He had a great love for philosophical learning and he loved Plato. um, And he wrote extensively on philosophical topics. Uh, However, he decided to forego the career of a philosopher to become a statesman because he so believed in the practical application of philosophy. So he he decided to become a politician so he could do the most good with his philosophical uh, training. Uh, And so he went and he was so gifted. He went into politics and he became exceedingly successful, actually um, becoming essentially the right hand man or chief counsel. I can't remember the exact title um, to the Roman emperor at the time. Then, as all successful men do, Tim, I'm sure you know this, you probably have many out for your life, Um, there was uh, a lot of envy about his position, and so he had enemies that framed him uh, for a capital crime, treason, and he was indeed arrested and thrown into prison, where he sunk into a very deep depression, and that's where the book Consolation of Philosophy was birthed. Uh, So Consolation of Philosophy is a dialogue. It's a really, really cool book. It's actually really pretty easy read um and it's short uh and it's only five books long um with a few subsections within you know eight to ten subsections within each book um so it's not very long it's pretty easy and everybody would love this book i like i'm convinced everybody every thoughtful christian should read this book at least once Mm. in their lifetime or at least pick it up uh so uh the the book is framed as a dialogue. Like he's he's lamenting his fate in prison and complaining about everything he's been through. Uh, and then this woman appears to him, philosophy, lady philosophy. She appears to him in prison and she asks him what's wrong. And he says, well, this and this and this. And he just vents everything to her. And she's like, get your head, get, get yourself together. Like, and then she consoles mm-hmm. him with an entire long uh very comprehensive treatise on suffering and the great and greatness of soul. This is why consolation should should and ought to console you in your grief. You claim to be a philosopher and you're failing right now because philosophy is practical. 
it should impact your soul and your life and make you better. That's her entire point. You cannot claim to be a philosopher until you have suffered an internalized philosophy and turned it into the good, right? Um, And that is part of her point. Within it, as a subsection, she comes up with, for the first time in Western culture, we see um, a really, really interesting idea that's kind of taken from classical philosophy and then turned into later medieval classics, latched onto this idea, and it came from Boethius, the idea of what he calls fortune's wheel, uh, which is that there's this, you know, we as moderns tend to see life as a road, right? Like an infinite forward progression. The medieval saw it very differently. They saw it in, as cyclical. So if you're at the top of the wheel, you have fortune is kind to you, but fortune will inevitably turn the wheel. Fortune is a goddess who will inevitably turn the wheel and you will go to the bottom and then come back up. And there's Lots and lots of references to that, obviously, in A Confederacy of Dunces. That idea of fortune's wheel becomes absolutely essential to future medieval thinking. And so does Consolation of Philosophy as a book. Um, and so, and even as I'm saying these things, now to transition back to Confederacy of Dunces, I'm hearing, to your point, how important that this book is to the to Ignatius Riley, who loves this book and is living out absolutely none of its principles. And right. Um, right. And, right? Um, and claiming them as his own and even, you know, evangelizing them to others and mm-hmm. then completely divorcing himself from it. That's um, that whole idea of like, he's got the head and he's got the belly, but he lacks the chest mm-hmm. and consolation of philosophy could be one of those things that, that builds that up in him. And yet he doesn't have the eyes to see it. He does make references to, like, I think at the end of one of the sections, he kind of cries, ah, alas, fortune's wheel turns again. so great. Right? It's It's so so funny. funny Because he's kind of, he's, I mean, he starts at the bottom and he gets thrown down to the bottom. Like, there's no real ascent for him. There's no... There's no ascent of character. Like his ascent is when he's hired by Levy Pants and he manages to get paid for not working. That's his idea of ascent. You know, when he gets thrown down off the wheel, he's not really any lower or any higher than he was when he was ascending. So even that part, it's just a little bit of irony that he's not... He's not even abiding by that aspect of Boethius. The wheel of fortune doesn't really seem to do much for him. Right. Well, and I think that to your point, that that is clear from the beginning, like that idea of him not living up to the ideal. But what you just said a few minutes ago that kind of clicked something for me is to compare it to the cow creamer in in the Woodhouse, in G's in Worcester. And as like, like this recurring weight of symbolism, this objective correlative, somebody's taking a shot and putting it on the bingo board right now, <laughs> um, the subjective correlative to the idea of the, the, you know, the great divorce between the head and the belly and the, um, and, and actions and ideals. Like he's just such a strange mix of ideal, idealistic and loathsome, you know, and, um, and if, and the fact that consolation of philosophy keeps coming up and the whole point is that this is the statesman who wanted to withdraw from the world, but instead engaged with it in order to do the most good. And Ignatius J. Riley is doing the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's um, disengaging from the world. And so in that way, the book itself is like the cow creamer and it kind yeah. of ties everything together. That is helpful for me. That's really helpful. Thank you. I'm going to read a section 
Uh, it's page 202 in my book. It's from when Patrolman Mancuso, who's received a copy of The Consolation of Philosophy from Ignatius J. Riley, and then he's kind of condemned to work a bathroom to find any suspicious characters that he can find. He finds no suspicious characters until George, this young man who kind of like runs photographs for Lana, who works at the Night of Joy, <laughs> one of these kind of like secondary tertiary characters, he shows up and Mancuso tries to arrest him. And so I'm just going to read a paragraph. What I would like to hear from you, Heidi, afterwards is if you read this to the Scott White, <laughs> would he laugh? And right. if so, what sort of laugh would it be? Here's the section. <laughs> Patrolman Mancuso reached out to grab George by the arm and handcuff him, but George snatched the consolation of philosophy from under Patrolman Mancuso's arm and slammed it into the side of his head. Ignatius had bought a large, elegant, limited edition of the English translation, and all $15 of its price hit Patrolman Mancuso in the head with the force of a dictionary. Patrolman Mancuso bent over to pick up the monocle, which had fallen from his eye. When he straightened up again, he saw the boy scraping rapidly out of the door of the restroom with a book in his hand. He wanted to run after him, but his head was throbbing too badly. He returned to his booth to rest and grew even more depressed. That's so funny. Would, would the Scott White appreciate that? Would he, would he laugh? I think he would. I think he would. I was reading a lot it, of sections to the Scott White this, this weekend, uh, this week. Snickering? That one, I think, I think that particular part, he might need a little bit of back. He's not read Boethius. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you might, it might just be the guy hitting him on the head with a book. But yeah. If you compare it to like a, <laughs> like a street preacher hitting you on the head with a Bible, that might, yeah. you know. <laughs> that's kind of what it, yeah, it's kind of yeah. what it is. That's, that's kind of what I got from it. <laughs> that part's so funny. That made me laugh. Oh man, this really is such a funny book. I feel like, I kind of feel like you're maybe coming around a little bit. I, I, yeah, I think I, I think I need to finish it. Yeah. I think once I finish it, I will have just a better grasp to me right now. Truth be told, the lack of, of cohesion in the plot feels like a flaw in the writing. Okay. Now that you I might change my mind on once we get to the end again, it might come together so beautifully that I'm like, Oh, that was totally worth it. That was perfectly written. He made exactly the right choice. So. But right now the sidebar in the night of joy just seems arbitrary to you. Can you does? Yeah. yeah. What's up with that? We met, you know, we, like just to review, we met them in the mm -hmm. opening section of the book and Ignatius and his mom go in and they order a drink, you know, after Ignatius is almost arrested and taken in by Mancuso. It seems like it's more been a platform for introducing characters than it's been anything else. Like there's this kind of question of, you know, the woman who wants to be an exotic dancer and brings in the cockatoo <laughs> or the parakeet or whatever. And it's, I mean, it's, it's funny at points, but I'm also kind of like, this has got to be going towards some grander plot reunion with Ignatius and or his mother. It's got to be. And right. I think it is. Yeah. It's got to be.
Yeah. Well, in Santa Bataglia and um, Robichaux, is that his name? Claude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Claude Robichaux? Yeah. And, Claude, um, who's worried about all the communists. Yes, yes. And the, I mean, there's just, there's all these side characters that I don't, I don't get. And, and the Levies, as you pointed out, um, yeah. you know, this yeah. weird mixture of like upper class depravity and smallness of soul. Like it's, it is a, just uh-huh. a very, um, like the characters are so well drawn. I just don't know why they're there. And yeah. so as we get to yeah. the end. Those are beautiful knickknacks. Yeah, yeah. What are they doing right. here? That's a great description of it. So once we get to the end and I see how it ties together, I'm hoping I will come back and eat my words and say, I totally get it. That was uh-huh. exactly the right way to write this book. But we're right now only about halfway through. So right. we still have got a ways to go before we figure out like what exactly is going on with these side characters. Okay, I would like to read as we kind of start to move toward the end of the show, um, a section from Ignatius J. Riley's work under the pseudonym work. Working Boy. <laughs> I do have a segment to read from that. I will see if okay. it's the same segment. I, ho- I yes. hope it's not the same segment, but it might be. So this for me is on page 238. Okay. Uh, Ignatius has, been, has taken a job as a weenie salesman. <laughs> And he's selling hot dogs now in the French Quarter, which is just the cesspool of modern New Orleans for him. It's just, it could not be any worse. Uh, And so here are the top three paragraphs from his description of his work in the French Quarter. Clearly, an area like the French Quarter is not the proper environment for a clean living, chaste, prudent, (laughs) and impressionable young working boy. Did Edison, Ford, and Rockefeller have to struggle against such odds? (laughs) Clyde's fiendish mind has not stopped at so simple an abasement, however, because I am allegedly handling what Clyde calls the tourist trade. I have been comparisoned in a costume of sorts. Judging from the characters that I've had on this first day within the new route, the tourists seem to be the same old vagrants I was just selling to in the business district. In a stupor induced by Sterno, they have doubtlessly stumbled down into the quarter and thus, to Clyde's senile mind, qualify as tourists. I wonder whether Clyde has ever even had the opportunity to see degenerates and wrecks and drifters who buy and apparently subsist on Paradise products. Between the other vendors, totally beaten and ailing itinerants whose names are are things like Buddy, Pal, Sport, Top, Buck, and Ace, and my customers... (laughs) I'm apparently trapped in a limbo of lost souls. <laughs> Do you know what's really funny? You read that passage. And while I was reading it and laughing out loud, once again, uh-huh. um, LOL, LOL. That whole, LOL, the nicknames, Buddy, Pal, Sport, Top, Buck, and Ace. I was laughing so hard. And I thought to myself, <laughs> Tim will love this part. Like, I just knew that you would oh, love you, that. Oh, you really? Yes. You were right. You yes. were so right. I love it. I am okay, going to um, read. What about you? I'm yeah. going to read the pirate fight because I could not hold it oh, together. Good. I was like, I read it like four times and then I like called everyone in my house to come and listen to me read it again. <laughs> yeah. All right. And I don't even think I'm going to make it through without laughing my head off, <laughs> even reading it on the air. Okay. Remind, what page are we on? Well, you have a different book than I do, but it's just oh, okay. the next page after what you read. So great, I bet great. it's 239. 
Okay. Um, the sen- that paragraph begins, but back to the matter at hand. Mm-hmm. But back to the matter at hand, Clyde's vengeance. <laughs> the vendor who formerly had the Quaker route wore an improbable pirate's outfit, a paradise vendor's nod to New Orleans folklore and history, a Clydean attempt to link the hot dog with Creole legend. <laughs> Clydean. <laughs> Clyde forced me to try it on in the garage. The costume, of course had been made to fit the tubercular and underdeveloped frame of the former vendor, and no amount of pulling and pushing and inhaling and squeezing could get it into my, onto my muscular body. <laughs> therefore, <laughs> therefore, a compromise of sorts was made. About my cap, I tied the red sateen pirate scarf. I screwed the one golden earring, a large novelty store hoop of an earring, onto my left earlobe. I affixed the black plastic cutlass to the side of my white vendor's smock with a safety pin. Hardly an impressive pirate, you will say. However, when I studied myself in the mirror, I was forced to admit that I appeared rather fetching in a dramatic way. Brandishing the plastic cutlass at Clyde, I cried, walk the plank, Admiral. This, I should have known, was too much for his literal and sausage-like mind. He grew most alarmed (laughs) and proceeded to attack me with his spear-like fork. We lunged about in the garage like two swashbucklers in an especially inept historical film for several moments. Fork and cutlass clicking against each other madly. Realizing that my plastic weapon was hardly a match for a long fork wielded by a maddened Methuselah. Realizing that I was seeing Clyde at his worst, I tried to end our little duel. I called out pacifying words. I entreated. I finally surrendered. All the semicolons in that sentence, by the way, are super Uh funny uh to me. (laughs) Still, Clyde came, my pirate costume so great a success that it had apparently convinced him that we were back in the golden days of romantic old New Orleans when gentlemen decided matters of hot dog armor at 20 paces. Oh, my gosh. It was then that a light dawned in my intricate mind. I knew that Clyde was really trying to kill me. He would have, he would have the perfect excuse, self-defense. I had played right into his hands. Fortunately for me, I fell to the floor. <laughs> I had backed into one of the carts, lost my always precarious balance, and had fallen down. Although I struck my head rather painfully against the cart, I cried pleasantly from the floor. You win, sir. Then I silently paid homage to dear old Fortuna for snatching me from the jaws of death by Rusty Fork. By Rusty Fork. (laughs) That's not only one of the funniest paragraphs I've ever read in my life. It's one of the most well-written. It is absolutely brilliant. I I mean, hats off, sir. (laughs) So good. It was then that a light dawned in my (laughs) intricate mind. I knew that Clyde was really trying to kill me. It's so good. He decided matters of hot dog honor at 20 basis. Heidi, I wonder, I wonder if I'm going to make a an, an comparison. All right. If you, you have, are kind of like being exposed to a confederacy of dunces. And, you know, Pray it's kind of like the, the odor and, right, the odor and the kind of, um, yeah, all of the it's partly the physicality the and part yeah. of like the tawdry, just like the shoddy nature of the of the story. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, but the 
the humor is kind of wearing you down a little bit. Like it's getting, it's getting to you, isn't it? Oh yeah. No, I love it. I love the humor. I especially love his writing. I love, I loved that Miss Miss Trixie called him Gloria. (laughs) Oh yeah. That is so funny. (laughs) It's so funny. Everything about this book is funny. And if, if that is the purpose, I, I am, I am all in on the humor. I'm totally all in on the humor that, like I said, the, the dissonance is not that I don't like the book. The dissonance is that I love the humor and don't like the character or the story very much. And so I'm just trying to like yeah. resolve that somehow or waiting for the book to resolve it for me. I'm passively yeah. accepting the humor and waiting for uh-huh. the book to dazzle me with its brilliance at the end. <laughs> that sounds great. But I really appreciate your thoughts. Like it's there. It was really helpful. Um, And I want to love every book on earth. And so I am happily willing to be convinced of anything. And so I really appreciate your um, zealous defense, but also your um, spirit of enabling that allows me to still experience (laughs) what I am experiencing in the book. (laughs) Right. Right. I do what I can, Heidi. Yeah, no, you're, you're great. Do you have any final thoughts, Tim? I don't. Uh, you know, no, I'm going to keep the string going. Okay. I keep waiting for this relationship between Ignatius and Myrna to actually, I just am still waiting for them to be in the same room. And I keep waiting for it and it keeps not happening. So I'm going to keep waiting for it until it happens or until the book ends. Mm-hmm. How about you? Final thoughts? Um, well, I mean, I feel like that about all the things I said on the show today. Like, I'm just, I'm here for it. I'm just waiting for it to dazzle me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, as a, as a therapist, like, I, I think what he's doing with the, you know, hands over your kids' ears for what I'm about to say for two seconds. I think what he's doing with um, Ignatius's um, like latent toxic sexuality is really brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like it's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so well written. It's so psychologically consistent. It it adds a lot of humor and I think a lot of pathos and and an um and an element of like creepiness to the story. Like it, yeah. I mean, it's it's so disturbing and yet it works so completely well that it. Um, it makes what is otherwise just a purely hilarious book have like a creepy quality to it. And that's hard to do yeah. as a writer. Like there's all yeah. of these different levels of playing with our minds that's happening in this book. So that's probably my final thought. I don't want to dig too much into it yeah, because that's, that's, you know, bleh, but that. You don't want to dwell on it. Right. Yeah. All right, Tim. So I'm going to ask you to do something for me because I'm, I can yeah. start a show just fine, but I'm not very good at ending it. Oh, so yeah. I'm just wondering if you could do it for me. You could save me from myself. I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> Thanks. Tim. Hey, on behalf of Heidi White and David Kern in absentia, we want to thank everybody for joining us for part three of the Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. We want to encourage you to join us next week. And until then, as always, we wish you happy reading.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.